Chapter Twenty One of *The Hawk of Egypt* by Joan Conquest, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Twenty One, No time so dark but through its woof there run some blessed threads of gold. C. P. Cranach. It is difficult, no, it is impossible to describe the wonder of dear El Bahari under the moon, just as it is impossible to describe the light that never was on land or sea, or the Taj Mahal or a mother's love. To our eyes, it is the picture of desolation, just as it must have been a picture of grandeur to those of the woman who built it, Queen Hatshepsut, sister, wife, and queen of Tutmos the Third. It is built in terraces to which you climb by gentle incline. It is surrounded and crossed by colonnades. There are ruined chapels and vestibules and recesses, an altar upon which offerings had once been made to the great gods. Broken steps and closed and open doors, behind which the ghosts of dead kings and queens, priests, priestesses, and nobles sit in ghostly council, through which they beckon you if you belong. There has surely come to each of us in this short span we term life the moment when, just introduced, we look into another's face and say, or think, we have met before. May it not have been that we once met to burn incense together before the dread god Anubis, or to make offerings upon the altar erected to the great god Ra Hamarkis, or was it perchance that you, if you are a woman, once waited at the temple gates to see him pass upon his return from the great expedition to the land of Punt, which we call Somaliland to-day? Had the man with hawk face who offers you a muffin or cup of tea to-day, once brought you gifts of ivory, or incense, or skin of panther from the wonderland? Did he sweep the seething crowd with piercing eye to find the face beloved, and pass on to the rolling of drums, the crash of cymbals, the blaring of trumpets, to make obeisance to his monarch, and return thanks to the mighty gods? Perchance. But Damaris had no thought of the past as she stood among the pillars of the colonnade, which commemorate the great expedition. She was enthralled with the hour, the solitude, the silence, as she hesitated, wondering which way to go. Then, even as she hesitated, the silence was broken by the distant throbbing of a drum. It came from one of the villages far down the hill, and, caught by the evening breeze, was carried to the temple, to be multiplied a hundredfold in the echoing roof. All other sounds may cease way out in the east. Birds may nest and humans sleep, but the sound of the drum faileth never. It is a message, a love-song, a lament, a prayer, and you hear it in the desert as in the jungle, in the temple as in the courtyard behind the hovel. It is not a wise thing to listen to its call, for it can lead you off the beaten track, or over the precipice, or out into the desert to die. It caught the girl's feet in the witchery of its rhythm, and set them moving upon the sand-covered floor of the temple. Yet there was no smile upon her lips when, moved by whatever it is that causes us to do strange things in the east, she danced like a wraith or a sylph, or a leaf in the wind, in and out of the columns and out into the light of the moon, and through the granite door on to the terrace where once had planted the incense-trees, which had come with the spoil from Punt, to perfume the air to the glory of Raha Marcus. The rolling of the drum stopped short, and Damaris came to herself with a start as she stood under the moon, then clasped her hands upon her thudding heart as she watched a man, with two great shaggy dogs, walk across the terrace towards her. Save for the Mohammedan head-covering, he was an Englishman, and he spoke in his mother's tongue to the girl he loved, 
and whom he had watched since her arrival with the jostling, laughing crowd. "'The gods of the temple are good to me,' he said simply. "'I prayed that I might watch you dance upon the incense terrace of their house. They have answered my prayer. Come.' As they passed across the terrace to the Hall of Columns, which is the vestibule of the Chapel of the God of Death, he told her how he had watched and waited, meaning no discourtesy, until she should visit the temple amongst the limestone hills. "'Where are we going?' Damaris spoke more to break the spell which seemed to hold her than to know the end of the walk across the sand. Bewitched by the moon and the terrific power of old Egypt, she would have followed the man blindly, fearing no hurt, even into the innermost sanctuary which, hewn out of the rock itself, lies at the extreme end of the temple." to the shrine of Anubis, the god of death, where I would show you the hawk of northern Egypt upon the wall. They passed between the great columns and up the flight of steps to the doorway, beyond which lie the chambers of the shrine, and there Hugh Cardin Ali took the girl's hand as he called her name aloud, until the walls or the spirits of the gods thundered back the echo. The gods introduced the kings of Egypt to the sanctuary. Anubis, god of death, as you will see by the painting upon the wall, led the great queen to the door, he said in reply to a whispered question from Damaris. I would not that the shadow of death touched the hem of your raiment. I called your name aloud so that the gods might hear. Do I believe in strange things? How can one say, I believe, or do not believe, in this land which is in the grip of a dead past which is not dead? And they passed in through the door, and stood looking up at the hawk of Horus, painted in the eighteenth dynasty upon the wall. Brilliant in colouring, green and white, with red-tipped wings, it spreads them above the place where once was seen the painted picture of the queen, who reigned and suffered and died thousands of years ago. "'Ah!' said Damaris, as she looked up to the corner. "'It is your—your your crest, your—it is a fantasy of mine. We trace my father's house right back without a break to the days of the pharaohs. So, I believe, does Muhammad Ali— bender of slippers in the bazaar. He paused, then added abruptly, with a frown and a movement of the shoulders, as though he were trying to shift a burden, "'If you will come with me to the inner chamber, if you are not afraid, I will interpret the story of the hawk to you in the shadows where it belongs.' Damaris put out her hand as though to speak, then passed into the inner room, across the threshold of which the dogs of Beely laid themselves down. "'Death is around us,' said Hugh Cardin Ali. Do you believe in omens? No, nor I. I wish there was a seat, so that you could rest whilst I tell you. Damaris laid her hand gently upon his arm, and he looked down into the face shining dead white in the reflection of the moon, which had silted in through a hole in the roof. You know? Damaris looked up and smiled. Yes, I know. And being the son of such a splendid people, I cannot understand why— the gates of pain and love and sacrifice were opened, and the girl shrank back against the wall as the tide of pent-up bitterness swept around her in the ruined shrine. The man's face was white, his eyes blazed in the agony of his hurt, whilst the dogs lifted their heads and growled. "'You do not understand. You do not understand that I love you. And loving you, I stand a prisoner behind the bars wrought for me by the love of my parents.' that I love you as surely as you have never been, never will be loved, and that I dare not, cannot ask you to be my wife, even if you loved me, which you do not. What? You do not see why I should not marry into my mother's race, even as my father did? I will tell you why. He gripped her wrists and pulled her to him, because I am the outcome of their union. 
My father is an Arab, my mother an Englishman. I—I I am a half-caste, I am nearer white, truly, than my father, but—but but my son, although he might be white or dark, a, a native, as you say in England, would be only a half-caste lying on your white breast, if you were my wife. The moonbeams lengthened as the man talked on, whilst Damaris learned one of love's bitterest mistakes. "'Oh, forgive me,' he ended. "'Why did I bring you here to hurt you, to make you cry for a pain which is not yours? Why are you left alone? It is so dangerous in this land of my father's. Your godmother deserts you whilst she goes to my mother, who is afraid for me. Ah, did you not know? The man who loves you has left you to the wind of chance. My friend, Big Ben Kellum, O oh, gods of ancient Egypt, how you must laugh! My friend! Shall we meet again, I wonder? Surely Anubis, the god of death, Anubis, the jackal-headed, who leads the soul of the departed through the underworld to the presence of the great Osiris, surely he moved upon the wall, and turned to look after those two as they passed out of the inner chamber, to stand beneath the hawk upon the wall. Or was it the shifting moon amongst the shadows? Will you— there was no trace of the man's anguish in his voice. The Mohammedan's resignation to the inevitable may seem a weak way out, to one who will kick and worry until he drops from exhaustion, but it saves a great deal of pain to others. Will you—you must surely marry some day, so beautiful, so sweet you are. Will you let me give you this as a wedding present, and will you think of me, a prisoner, when you fasten it in your wedding gown? He held out a jewel in the shape of a hawk, which spread its wings upon the wall above them. It was found here in this sanctuary. A priestly ornament? A pilgrim's offering? Who knows? Will you—I have no right to it, for beneath my wings is the plumage of another race. I am not a pure-bred son of northern Egypt. Will you pin it in? The girl's voice shook as she tilted back her chin, so that her mouth was on a level with the man's, as he bent to fasten the jewel in the silk. Will you promise me one thing? Yes, yes, you are good to the prisoner— Allah, how I love you, and surely, if I may not be your master, I may serve you. If you should be in trouble, ever, in this land of Egypt, the very soil of which is drenched with the blood of those who have fought and loved and won, and lost thousands of years before the coming of the gentle prophet, who said that in the sight of the great God, anyway, we are brethren, yes, if trouble should come to you, will you send me a messenger, to the tents of purple and of gold? I am doing you a great wrong in lingering where I can catch glimpses of you. I love you, love you, but that is no excuse for causing you harm through the wagging of evil tongues. Tears dropped one by one upon the jewel which glittered on her breast. And if I were in trouble, great trouble, if I were to come to you myself, how—my boat waits at the landing stage from sundown to sunrise, the swiftest mare in all Egypt, as the fortune-teller foretold you, the snow-white mare, Piquet, waits from the setting until the rising of the sun at the gate of tomorrow, which is a ruined portal on the road of the Colossi. From there the way lies west, and fear not. He pointed to an inscription on the wall and translated it in the Egyptian tongue. I have come full of joy because of my love to thee. My hands are full of all life and purity. I am protecting thee among all gods." Followed by the dogs, they walked slowly down the incline to a mound of rubbish flung up and left by an excavating party many years back. Behind it they found the stallion sultan in the care of his saïs, also the one donkey which had wandered off in search of grass and got lost, and whose absence in the cavalcade had not been noticed on account of the disorder of the descent. Kismet! 
had said Jobad the guide when he had made the discovery at the water's edge. If the white folk could not keep count of themselves, he was not going to draw their attention to the fact that one of the party was missing. He had not the slightest intention of providing an evening meal for the lion by offering to go in search of the pair. Kismet! Allah would watch over them. Hugh Cardin Ali leapt into the saddle without touching the stirrups, then swung the girl as lightly as a leaf up into his arms. Heedless of the extra burden of the slip of a girl who had mastered him in the desert, and who lay so quietly against his master's heart, the magnificent black beast stood stock still, then suddenly shivered violently, just as the dogs of Beely, belly to the ground, eyes blazing, ruffs on end, growled softly. Hugh Cardin Ali pressed Amaris back against his shoulder, and turned and looked in the direction whence had come that sound, paralyzing if you do not happen to be armed. From somewhere amongst the rocky wilderness of the hills, carried by the night-breeze, had come the hoarse coughing of a lion. "'Listen,' he said. And as it came again, with shrieks of, "'Sabe! Sabe!' the pea-green saïs leapt upon the back of the terrified donkey, which, spurred by fear, disappeared like a streak down the hill, just as the stallion, sweating with pure terror, reared and wheeled, then backed, with great eyes rolling and hoofs striking sparks from the stones. Up he reared, until it seemed impossible that he should not fall backwards, crushing to death or hideously maiming the man who, encumbered with the girl upon his arm, could do little to calm the frightened beast. And well for him it was that Hugh Cardin Ali, with his love and understanding of horses, knew that only to the sagacity of the animal could the safe negotiation of the dangerous descent down the hillside be left. He gave Sultan his head. There is no danger in it, goodness knows, when you bestride a diminutive donkey whose dainty feet know every pebble on the route. But there is danger when an animal like Sultan takes the avenue of sphinxes at a mad rush, and slips and slithers and slides, under the impetus of his own weight, pace and terror, the rest of the way, even if he is as sure-footed as a goat. Later, when her beloved child wakened the night-porter, Jane Coop, blue with anxiety and cold, most unhygienically closed the window and thankfully padded off to her comfortable bed. End of chapter 21. Read by Sibella Denton. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org.